If you're a follower of Jesus, you will suffer persecution. This is not a matter of if, it's simply a question of when. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that everyone who desires to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Luke records in Acts chapter 14 that Paul and Barnabas told believers in several cities that we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15 that if the world hated you, remember that it hated me first. And since they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you're a Christian, you will face persecution. Now, I know that's not a nice way to open the message today. Hey, come follow Jesus so you can get persecuted. But listen to me. True Christianity isn't based on making you feel good. It's based on the truth. And no matter how much the truth hurts, it's still the truth. In America, we have very little understanding of persecution. Most Christians in America are so busy with life and so out of touch with what's going on in the rest of the world, they have no real understanding of what it means to be persecuted. Let me just give you some recent headlines from around the world. Afghanistan. Taliban going door-to-door searching for Christians, inspecting phones for Bible apps. India, pastor driven from home after police torture and threaten. Uganda, mother beaten unconscious for leaving Islam, marrying a Christian. Pakistan, Christian woman accused of blasphemy for simply receiving a text. Syria, Syria's Christian population reduced by two-thirds since 2011. Nigeria, jihadists uproot 10 million Christians, kill 43,000 others in 12 years. Christian persecution is a real threat, and I believe it's coming to America. Will you be ready? Unfortunately, we here in America often act like we should be exempt or that we should be able to escape persecution. The fact is, Jesus never taught that. We are called to endure, not to escape. So when things get tough, stop looking for an escape and start looking for Jesus so that you can endure. And as the time for this world to end approaches, things are going to get rough. I wish I could tell you that it's going to be all lollipops and rainbows. I wish I could. But that's not the case. That's not what my Bible says anyway. We get a glimpse of what it's going to be like in Paul's second letter to Timothy. Paul says this. He says, You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. 
But we don't have to wait to see this. We're seeing it right now, aren't we? It's unfolding right before our eyes. Paul goes on to say to Timothy in chapter 4, he says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Fact is, we've got a lot of itching ears out there today. People just want them tickled. They don't want the truth. They just want what makes them feel good. This is what happens as we get closer to the end. And it's not surprising to see evil in the world. But what is surprising is how much of it we're seeing and how fast it's growing. Even more surprising is what's happening inside our churches. Many churches have caved to government tyranny and overreach over this COVID pandemic. Now, I didn't make a mistake. I did say pandemic. You bet you I did. Because that's what it is. Call it what it is. Unfortunately, we might see more of that again, more churches caving to this. And also, in many churches today, we've thrown out sound doctrine and we've replaced it. We've replaced it with a counterfeit religion called moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD. MTD believes that there is some distant God way off over here who just wants everyone to be nice and that the purpose in life is to just be happy. Real Christianity, as many of you know, has little to do with being happy, and it has everything to do with being holy. God wants us to be holy. He called us to be set apart, to be without sin, right? That's that whole sanctification that goes on once you accept Jesus into your life. That's that process that starts. He wants you to be holy, not happy. Now, you might be happy in the process of becoming holy, but your goal is not to be happy. George Barna, director of research at Arizona Christian University, he said that MTD, he calls it watered-down, feel-good, fake Christianity. And he says it's the most popular worldview in America today. Nearly 40% of adults have this view. And more than 60% of adults under the age of 40 who identify as a born-again Christian, they believe that Buddha... Muhammad and Jesus are all valid paths to salvation. Do you hear that? They're born again Christians and they believe that there's valid paths other than Jesus? That's crazy. Over 30% say they either believe that Jesus sinned just like other people when he lived on earth or they aren't sure. Obviously, we have an epidemic of biblical illiteracy going on. And the statistics tell us that as the end draws near, it's going to get worse. According to the American Bible Society, 9 out of 10 American households own a Bible. Actually, the average in a home is that they have three Bibles. So that begs the question, if we have an epidemic of biblical illiteracy going on and most homes have a Bible, then what is the problem? The problem is the Bible's not a priority because we're not reading it. We're not studying it. We're not spending time in the Bible. The keys to life are right here in this book. (laughs) They're right here. You want to know how to be prepared for life? Read this book. You want to know how to be prepared for the end? Read this book. The truth is, without the word of God, we are incomplete and we are woefully unprepared for our purpose in life. That's what Paul tells us here. If we continue in our text, in 2 Timothy 3, he says... 
All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Do you hear that? All Scripture. Okay? That means every single word that's in this Bible. We don't pick and choose what we want to make us happy. Every single word in here is given by inspiration of God. Yes, it is true that God used 40 different authors over 66 books over a span of like 1,600 years. But you know what? It's all the Word of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to be equipped? You want to be complete? That's your answer right there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Forgive us, Jesus, for not encountering you the way that we need to by reading this word, by studying it, and by sharing it with other people. I pray today, Lord, that this message would reach our hearts, would reach our minds, and would cause us to take action because the time is near. In Jesus' name, amen. So please open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to break down verses 7 through 11 today. And my title for today's message is this, The End is Near. And the question that I want all of you to think about today as we spend this time together this morning is, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you living your life in such a way that it reflects that the end is near? Look at verse 7 here in our first verse. It says, The end of all things is near. This ought to get our attention. This is our wake-up call right here. The end is near, friend. Yeah, it's true. People have been saying that in every generation for the past 2,000 years. But the fact is, we've been living in the last days since Jesus ascended into heaven. That's the period of time since Jesus ascended. That's what's referred to as the last days. But I can tell you this. We're closer to the end now than we've ever been. It's clear from Scripture that no one knows the exact time of the end. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, He says, No one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son. Only the Father alone knows. It's a good thing we don't know the exact time when Jesus will return. Because if we did, we might be tempted to just sit around and be lazy and wait. Or we might be tempted to just keep on sinning right up until before he comes and then repent. We should not have an attitude of just putting our lives on cruise control and waiting for heaven to get here. We've got real work to do right now, today. When Jesus taught in parables about his return, his emphasis was never on the exact time of when he would come back. So we shouldn't be consumed with trying to figure that out. You got people running around talking about, well, he's coming back here. He's coming back then. And they get so consumed with that. That is not the focus. It shouldn't be anyway. There is a lot of debate about end time prophecy on how things are going to unfold and when this will happen and when that will happen. My purpose today is not to try to untangle any of that. In fact, I actually love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, I often fear that the questions which are asked by many people concerning various mysterious or difficult doctrines in the Bible are only asked in order to try to lull their consciences to sleep while they're living in rebellion against God. 
A man says to me, can you explain the seven trumpets of the revelation? No, but I can trumpet blow one in your ear and warn you to escape from the wrath to come. Another says, can you tell me when the end of the world will come? No, but I can tell you how to be so prepared for it that you need not be afraid if it were to come tonight. And therein lies my purpose for today. I want to make sure that you're prepared for the end of the world. When Jesus returns, when he does come back, whenever that happens, I want you to be prepared. It's less about how close we are, and it's more about how prepared we are. It concerns me that a great deal of people are living their lives without much care that the end is near. Jesus warned us about this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Now, yes, there was tremendous wickedness going on in the time of Noah. But the emphasis here in this text is more about how people were so caught up and they were so preoccupied with all that was going on in their lives that they failed to realize that danger, that judgment was imminent. This is a serious warning for us today because Jesus' return will happen the same way. Are you too busy with the pursuits of this world or with your own selfish ambitions that you're not ready for the Lord's return? It's a tough question. Unfortunately, we have so many today that are absolutely oblivious or just plain apathetic about the end being near. Listen to me very carefully. If you've never given your life to Jesus, there is no time to waste. If you die today or if Jesus were to come back today, it would be too late. I want you to know that he loves you. He loves you. In fact, God the Father loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to this earth to die specifically for you and to save you from your sins. He came to save you from your sins because all sin leads to death. That's where it all ends up. And there's no escape without Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Without him, there is no way. You are dead in your sins, destined for hell forever. I know that sounds harsh, but that's the truth. There is no way that you can save yourself. There is only one Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. He shed his blood and died on that brutal cross for you, for me. It was the payment for your sins, and it was the only way. So the decision to follow Jesus is not one to put off. The very first step in being prepared for the end of all things is ensuring that you have received Jesus as your personal Savior. All of us will either end up in one of two places. When the end of all things is here, you're going to be either with Jesus in heaven or you're going to be without him in hell for all eternity. So I encourage you, if you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, today is that day. Don't leave here today without making that important decision.
because the end is near. Now here's what you're going to need to do. Confess with your mouth that that the Lord is, that Jesus is Lord, and then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you'll be saved. You can do that right now in your seat. You can do that at the end of this message when I give the invitation. Or you can do that at the end of this service with one of the prayer guides that will be up here for you. But friend, don't leave here today without making that decision if you've never done that. He loves you and he wants a relationship with you. Now, I really enjoy the words of the Apostle Peter. He is my kind of guy. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't hold back any punches. He just speaks the truth right to the point. I love this bottom line up front kind of style. It really resonates with me. Just give it to me straight. Give it to me quickly. That is Peter. So Peter, he gives us four commands and one goal in our text today. Each command illustrates for us how we are to be prepared for the end of all things. The first command is this. Get serious about prayer. We have got to get serious about prayer. You see this in verse 7. Peter says, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober mind, of sober mind, so that you may pray. To be alert is this idea of being spiritually awake. It's like when Jesus left James, John, and Peter, and he went off by himself to pray. When he came back, he found them all, all three of them sleeping. And he said, so you couldn't stay awake with me for just one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When we are not alert, when we're spiritually drowsy, we become a spiritual drifter. And drifting is dangerous. It's dangerous. You make yourself extremely vulnerable to temptation. And we can't fight temptation on our own. Don't think you can just tackle it yourself because you can't do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. Being spiritually awake keeps us sharp. It keeps us on edge so that we are much more aware of our danger. When we become spiritually drowsy, it is so easy to let our guard down. Sometimes it comes by what we allow ourselves to watch or listen to in our entertainment, whether it's online or on a TV or in our music or even in our movies. We must be alert and ready at all times. You know, I really enjoy hunting. Hunting is one of those things that I just love to do. I love to get out there in the woods. I love to, to take my weapons and stuff with me and just get out there. It is awesome. But I'll tell you one thing I don't like is I don't like seeing that white tail waving at me. I hate that. And they just go running, the deer just go running off. I can't stand that. Listen, deer are incredibly aware of their surroundings. And it can be extremely difficult to sneak up on them. They're always alert. They seem to always seem to be aware of imminent danger. You and I need to be like that. We can't be lulled into a false sense of security. You and I are being hunted every day. Did you know that? Do you know you're being hunted? Because we have an enemy in Satan who never stops. He never quits. We must be alert so we can pray because prayer is our way of defense. So we need to get serious about prayer. Paul also mentions that we need to be of sober mind here in our text. 
This is the idea of being clear-minded, not having any clutter. Sometimes when we get so bogged down with this life and all of our worries and all of our busyness, we don't even realize the danger that's about to come upon us. When we're busy, we make excuses for not reading our Bibles and for not spending time in prayer, if we're honest with ourselves. Now, I saw this during my study, and I thought this was pretty interesting. Busy. The word busy. It stands for being under Satan's yoke. I've also seen it as bound under Satan's yoke. I've also seen it as burdened under Satan's yoke. But either way, this is a good reminder because Satan wants nothing more than for us to be distracted, to keep us preoccupied with everything going on in this life. Some of you right now are thinking about what you're going to eat after this service, aren't you? Come on. You know you're be be honest. When's he going to finish so I can get out there and get something to eat? I know. I've sat right there myself. You can easily get distracted. Listen, Satan is a master distractor. And we've got to be alert and sober-minded so that we can pray. Peter, earlier in this letter in chapter 1, in verse 13, he says this. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is encouraging us here to focus. We've got to focus, to be sober. It's a time to be, it's not a time to be spiritually asleep. The meaning here is that we are to prepare our minds for action. When we allow our minds to wander, to be out of touch with God or to be out of obedience to God, then we're really out of touch with reality. And this is the spiritual equivalent of being drunk. That's what it is. If we really understood how totally and completely dependent we are on God, we would pray more. If we understood how high the stakes really are and that there's a fierce spiritual battle being waged all around us, we would pray more. If we really realized just how many people who need Jesus and are headed for judgment and then to hell for all eternity, we would pray more. The end is near. There is no time to waste. We must get serious about prayer. The second command that Peter gives us is to love each other deeply. We've got to love each other deeply. He says here in verse 8, he says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Above all. This means it trumps everything. There's nothing higher than this right here. When it comes to people, we've got to lead with love. It's not a superficial kind of love. This is agape love we're talking about. This is the highest form of love that the Bible talks about. And listen to me. This is not a love that's based on our feelings. Feelings lie, and feelings come and go. Love is not a feeling, love is a decision. Love is a sacrifice. Matter of fact, Jesus says in John 15, 13, that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That is sacrifice. And Peter is saying here not to just love, but to love deeply. He adds this word, deeply. Other translations use the term fervently. Love each other fervently. This means our love causes us to be stretched, 
Now, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about maybe having a practical exercise and making you all stand to your feet and touch your toes. But here, Don, I don't want you to do that. All I want you to do is just visualize yourself doing it, okay? Visualize yourself standing with your feet straight and you bend down to reach your toes. For many of you, that would be a stretch, wouldn't it? For a lot of you, it would probably hurt if you tried to grab your toes, if you, just, if you were to be honest, right? I see some of you all laughing. <laughs> The more we stretch, the more it hurts, right? This is the idea that Peter is getting at here when he says, above all, love each other deeply. Because it hurts sometimes. We need to love others sincerely, and it will hurt. And we choose to do it anyway. Peter reminds us also here that love covers over a multitude of sins. This involves forgiveness. This involves reconciliation. Listen to me, if you're a child of God, forgiveness is not optional. It is a requirement. You must forgive. It means working things out. The Apostle Paul gives us the greatest definition of love in all the Bible here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There's that word endure again. It endures all things. Love never ends. This is the biblical gold standard for love right here. And for most of us, if we're honest, this is a stretch. It's not easy, and it hurts. But whoever said loving others would be easy? God's word tells us loving others is the greatest commandment in all the Bible, right alongside loving him. Love God, love people. That is the entire biblical law summed up into one phrase. Love God, love people. And love means we endure. We don't escape. We commit to working things out because love never ends. Remember, love is not a feeling. It's a decision. It's worth the reminder that one of Satan's chief strategies is to divide and conquer. We see this everywhere today. Look at the division that's running rampant right now in our world. Look at the craziness, the bitterness, the violence, the insults, and the animosity towards one another when it comes to black versus white, Republican versus Democrat, conservative versus liberal, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, homosexual versus heterosexual, pro-life versus pro-choice, American versus non-American, Christian versus non-Christian, and on and on and on it goes. We constantly put labels on people, and then we put them in a box, don't we? You're this. You're that. Let me be very clear. The Bible only makes one meaningful distinction between people. It's the only real distinction that matters. Believers and unbelievers. Those who have bowed down to the lordship of Jesus Christ and those who have not. This is the only division that has any real significance. The rest is simply designed to keep us fighting each other. Do you know that? That's all that is. That's what Satan loves to do. Let me stir the pot here. 
<laughs> I can do that. In the church, out of the church, it doesn't matter. Divide and conquer. That's all he wants to do. Don't fall into Satan's trap of not loving someone because they belong to whatever label that you slapped on them. Satan's divide and conquer strategy, it reminded me of one of Aesop's fables. Aesop was an author in 600 BC, and he wrote all kinds of these little fables that got passed on from generation to generation. I'm going to read one to you because it's pretty good. It's called The Lion and the Three Bulls. Anyone heard of that? You have. Awesome. Okay. I was like, who's Aesop when I was studying? (laughs) Anyway, it goes like this. There were three bulls grazing in a meadow, and there was a lion in the distance who had tried to attack them several times. But because they had always stuck together and helped each other, they were able to drive the lion off each time. The lion really wanted to eat them, but he was no match for three strong bulls with sharp horns and hooves. So the lion began to secretly spread evil and slanderous reports of one bull against another until he had secured jealousy and distrust among them. Finally, the bulls were so mad at each other that they avoided each other completely and began grazing in different corners of the field. Then the lion attacked and ate each one of them. Here's the moral of the story. The quarrels of friends are the opportunities of foes. Now, here's something really similar here in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, doesn't he? Seeking whom he may devour. There it is. I've talked to you before about how lions hunt. They're always out there looking for that one prey that's off by itself. Because when you're alone, that's when you're the most vulnerable. But here's something very interesting in this text. The Greek words for be sober and be vigilant and for that pronoun your are all plural. They're all plural. This means we must be sober and vigilant together. We must be looking out for one another together. We must love one another deeply together, so much so that we work things out. We must forgive because love covers a multitude of sins. We've got to stay together. Interestingly, the Greek word for whom is singular. That word is singular. This means the devil devours people individually when they're alone. So here's the deal. Stay with your herd. Don't get caught being isolated. One practical way that you can stay with your herd is to join a life group. Right after service today, you could go out there and talk to Shelly. She'll be out there at the life group booth, and you could talk to her about joining, joining up for a life group. This will provide an opportunity for you to connect to be loved and to love others deeply. The end is near. We need to get serious about prayer. We must love each other deeply. And the third command that Peter gives us here is to offer hospitality without complaining. Offering hospitality is receiving people in our homes. It's taking care of them, ensuring their needs are met, making them feel welcome and making them feel accepted. Hospitality is simply using your home to serve others. That's what it comes down to. Now, most of us, we can do some hospitality. We can put on that fake veneer. I'm really happy, and I just fake it, don't I? Come on, you guys know it. You get your house ready, you get it all clean. You're, you're probably arguing with your spouse before they come over, and then they come over, and you're like, yes, everything's great. How was your day? Because we're really good fakers, aren't we? That's why Paul adds those words without complaining. He put those in there on purpose. When that guest overstays their welcome and leaves a mess or says says something to rub you the wrong way, don't complain about it. 
serve them in a spirit of love. It's hard work. It really is hard work, but we've got to do it without complaining. Sunday mornings are great. This is great having you guys here. But we really need to be meeting in homes. We need to be fellowshipping together. That's what real community is. That's how you build real community. Life groups are perfect for this. So I encourage you to get plugged into one of those today. If you're going to be prepared for the end, you're going to need a community. The end is near. So get serious about prayer. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality without complaining. And the fourth command that Peter tells us here is this. Oh, I didn't even show the verse, did I? I just was rolling. Well, there's the verse for you. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Y'all got it? Okay. All right, our fourth one is use your gifts faithfully. Use your gifts faithfully. Peter tells us here in verse 10, he says, I won't miss it this time. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. Every Christian, the moment that you receive Jesus, you are given at least one gift. You may not know what your gift is, but it's there. Many of you have more than one. Now let me clear up a common misconception that people have. Many people believe that the ministry is what the pastors do. The pastor's job is not to do the work of the ministry. The pastor's job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. You think I'm joking? Man, I'm making this up? Make y'all do the work? No, I'm not joking. Watch this. It's right here in, our, in the text. It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. To do what? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God put us in this church so that we would grow. And it's in our ministry to each other that this happens. Your challenge is to find what your gifts are and to use them. I don't know about you, but I want to hear that on that day, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's why you got to use your gifts faithfully, okay? We're accountable to what we do here on this earth. Now, one way that you can do this is you can sign up for our Discover Your Ministry class, which is part of our spiritual growth track of classes. It's our third one in the series. You don't have to take these in order. You can take them in any order that you want. But 301 is the class in which we teach you about spiritual gifts and how your unique shape contributes to that. We typically offer this class twice a year, and the next one is in October. So if you're interested in that, you want to sign up, you can do that on the kiosk right before you head out the door. You can sign up for that. In this class, we will guide you on a discovery of who God made you to be, because we believe that once you understand who God made you to be, you will understand what God made you to do. Spiritual gifts are given to serve others. This is a very critical point. These gifts are not given for your benefit. They're given so that you'll bless others with them. Now, Peter, he classifies spiritual gifts into two categories in our text. You see this here in verse 11. He says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very, very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter says here that there's speaking gifts and there's serving gifts. These are the two major classifications. The Apostle Paul, he speaks in great detail. If you want to read about spiritual gifts, go to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and chapters 14. He does a good job laying those out. But it's no accident that the greatest chapter in all the Bible on love is sandwiched right in between that. Sandwiched right in between the two chapters on spiritual gifts. So what Paul does here is right in the middle of his teaching on spiritual gifts, Paul stops and he says, hey, by the way, let's talk about love. Because if I don't have love, I'm nothing but a clanging symbol, he says. I could be the greatest teacher in all the world. I could be the greatest preacher in all the world. I could be the greatest administrator in all the world. I could be the smartest person in all the world. But if I don't have love, it's absolutely nothing, Paul says. Watch this. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. I'd be nothing. We must love to serve and we must serve to love. A non-serving Christian is a contradiction. Did you know that? So I encourage you to discover your gifts, start using them. The church needs you. Don't be fooled by our enemy who will try to tell you that you don't matter or that you're not needed. That is a lie because you are needed and you are wanted. The church is incomplete without every single person using their spiritual gifts. The end is near. Use your gifts faithfully. Now we're going to look at this text one more time, different translation. I want to encourage you that as you're studying the Bible, jump in different translations. You'd be surprised how God will speak to you in a way you might not have known otherwise if you're not just jumping around in different translations. It's actually pretty fun to do that. So it says, if anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now we come to the one goal of those four commands that we've talked about today. And that one goal is to glorify God. It all comes down to this. God gets the glory. Amen. Amen, Right? Y'all should be jumping out of your seat. God gets the glory in everything. He does. He gets it. I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine a church where everyone gets serious about prayer, loves each other deeply, shows hospitality without complaining, and faithfully uses their gifts. That would be a church glorifying God. That would be a church prepared for the end of all things when Jesus comes back. The end is near. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that we have your word at our disposal every day. Thank you for that freedom that we have. At least we have that freedom right now. And I pray, Jesus, that you would encourage us to walk with you, to walk by faith, not by sight, that we would engage and we would endure 
knowing that the time is near. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior and you said to yourself, I want to make that decision today. If that's you, please slip up your hand so I can pray for you. Anyone here today want to make that their decision? This is the first decision. It's a prerequisite to being prepared for the end of all things is that personal relationship with Jesus. And he wants you to have that with him. Anyone here want to make that decision today so I can pray for you? Okay, others of you may be here and you're thinking, you know what? I have let my life be filled up with so much stuff. I'm so busy. I'm so worried about this and my job and my marriage and this. And can I have a baby? Can I not have a baby? Am I going to get injured here? What am I going to do? It's on and on and on those questions come about in our minds. Lord, we want your peace. We know the time is short. And we want to make the best of it while you're here. If that's you and you're like, you know what? Something resonated with me today. And I want to decide today that I'm going to get serious about my prayer. I'm going to use my gifts. I'm going to do those things, love each other deeply. Anyone here today want to make that decision? I can pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of hands. Amen. So, Father, I pray that you, your spirit would fill these people up who've said, yes, I want to realize the end is near and I want to make the best of my time. Lord, I pray that you'd fill them up that you'd encourage them, that you'd help them to get into your word, that you'd help them to walk out their faith and engage people. Lord, we know the time is near and there's a lot of people that don't know you and it's incumbent upon us to share that love with them. I pray, Jesus, that you'd encourage us as we go. We love you and praise you because you get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.